Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 154, Best Laid Plans. The invasion of Manchuria really screwed Chiang Kai-shek, but good. From 1928 to 1931, he had been able to manage the enemies of his progressing dictatorship on his own timetable and in a manner that he could manage. He had always known in the back of his mind that the Japanese would eventually have to be dealt with by force, but only after the three-step plan of eliminate rivals, industrialize the economy, and then use that modernized economy to build an equally modern army had all been completed. As it stood, none of that was complete by the time the Northeast fell. While the plans of the Japanese were not known, the major enroachments out of Manchuria starting in early 1933, and the resulting embarrassment that was the Tangu Truce, all of which I covered in episode 147, meant that Japanese interference all across northern China could be expected to continue in one shape or form indefinitely. To try and meet this existential threat, the only plan Chiang could muster was to eat the humiliation of appearing passive against the Japanese while going about his original plan as aggressively as possible. The reasoning of ignoring the Japanese was that even if the gauntlet was thrown down immediately and the invaders were met with everything the Nanjing government had at its disposal, that wouldn't be enough to win. The Japanese would just use their mastery of the sea and air to strike wherever they pleased, and their much better equipped army would run roughshod over even the battle-hardened core of the NRA. Chang's power base, the army, would be destroyed, a new pile of concessions would have to be offered, and you can bet the warlords and communists would find some way to avoid direct commitment, leaving their forces intact to torment the nationalist government at its most vulnerable. No, better to get the house in order before embarking on a foreign war. But where even to start? On the warlord front, things actually weren't looking too bad. Uh, Yan Zhi Shan, after 1930, showed no indication he was prepared to leave Shenzhi. The southerners were unruly, but had proven weak challengers. And Zheng Zhuleng had just lost his home of Manchuria, and not long thereafter, his secondary territories around Beijing. The part of the old Fengtian army still in the field would continue to follow him, though, and he would eventually be handed a consolation home, the dry and rugged province of Shanxi, which both rewarded Zhang staying on the KMT side, but also kept him distant from the true centers of power in China proper. That left the communists. Not only were they still holed up in the mountains of the south, the disasters of the first three encirclement campaigns against them meant that they were actually stronger than ever. The territory they controlled counted millions of inhabitants, with hundreds of thousands having joined the Red Army. They even had pretensions of declaring a counter-government, inching closer to making themselves a legitimate alternative to the Kuomintang. The silver lining of this was that attacking the CPC base camps provided a handy pretext for large-scale deployments of the NRA down into the southern provinces, giving additional opportunity to establish closer government control there. In total, by this point, there were three major communist base camps, along with a large constellation of smaller ones that I won't cover. But there was the Zhongzhi base camp, whose early beginnings we covered towards the end of the China miniseries from last season. That's where Mao had set up with what had come to be called the First Front Army. Then there was the Second Front Army to the west in northern Hunan province, while the Fourth Front Army had coalesced on the border of Hubei and Anhui provinces to the north of Zhongzhi. Again, there were numerous smaller ones by the start of 1933, but those were the big ones. And if you're familiar with the CPC's history, you might recognize them as the starting points of the armies that would take part in the Long March, which 
as the name suggests, was a mass movement of communists out of China's south, which does lead me to a confession. I'm actually going to only, once again, be touching on the encirclement campaigns today. Uh, yes, I know I already kicked that can last week, but it's more appropriate to cover the details of these later. Uh, in a couple weeks, I'm going to shift focus to the communists, and these battles were of life and death importance to them, and directly kicked off the Long March which will be the focus for the end of this miniseries. So if you're a little disappointed by my brevity today, I'll be making up for it. At least a little. Honestly, there isn't that much to tell. The encirclement campaigns were brutal slogs where the outcome was more dependent on the NRA's wherewithal than its battlefield prowess. But anyway, back to the base camps. It was the 4th Front Army, situated uh, more towards the center of the country, that most threatened the Kuomintang's interests, as it sat on the Yangtze River with all of its shipping traffic and was adjacent to Wuhan, which was itself an important transportation hub. That made it a prime target, and the NRA focused much of its energy towards dislodging them. The battles against them went about as well as the encirclement campaigns I mentioned last week. From 1930 to 1932, the attempts at destroying this cluster of resistance proved fruitless, despite the numerical disparity in favor of the NRA. Finally, in July 1932, Chang showed up personally with 300,000 men, and this time wouldn't accept a defeat in so critical a region. The terrain the communists were operating in wasn't nearly as rugged as what was found further south, and the 4th Army itself was badly exhausted from the continuous fighting. The local CPC leader, Zhang Guotao, opted to avoid annihilation by breaking out of the encirclement and heading west into northeastern Sichuan province. The significance of Sichuan was that it was big, prosperous, and on the edge of China proper, away from the core of the Kuomintang's power. I haven't mentioned Sichuan a whole lot despite it being a big prize to be won, and that's because it was divided among seven minor warlords who for years had been vying against each other. It was a hopelessly confused mess that even Chinese historians treat with exasperation, so I'm not going to really be covering their local goings-on. Anyway, Sichuan seemed to be like a decent uh, spot to set up shop, and the 4th Army managed to mass a force of around 30,000 men and punch through the western part of the Nationalist lines in mid-October 1932, leaving behind some 6,000 soldiers to act as a rearguard to tie down the bulk of the NRA forces. This could be seen as a technical beginning to the Long March, as it signaled the start of the communist migrations west to get away from the KMT. While Chang was able to declare victory, Zhang Guotao's 4th Army was still intact and successfully managed to set up a new Soviet on the northern border of Sichuan, where it would remain until Mao would pass through the neighborhood en route to parts even more distant. And these 6,000 rearguards weren't sacrifices either. They eventually gave up the ground they held, but stayed together as a unit fighting a guerrilla war until deciding to join the main body of the Red Army in 1935 after it established itself in China's northwest. This left the Jiangxi Soviet as the biggest communist outpost in China proper, and in January 1933, the fourth encirclement campaign against that Soviet commenced. Chiang really could have picked a better time, as despite marshalling a half million men, it was winter in the mountains, and conditions were the total opposite of what you'd want to launch a counterinsurgency campaign. After a few months, the battle was called off in March 1933. It probably didn't help at all that at that exact same time this campaign was taking place, the Japanese were invading northern China. 
Zheng Zhulang's incompetent defense of the North meant that the Great Wall defenses had to be staffed with regular troops, and even Beijing fell under threat of occupation. Once again, pressure from the Japanese had hindered Cheng's effort to enforce his rule elsewhere in China. Not that Cheng was prepared to admit defeat, though. He spent the time from the end of March to the start of the next campaign at the end of September, carefully building up a new army. This included not only bringing in more of his own personal troops, but also bringing in all the southern warlords and even shuttling in Zheng Zhulang and his, at that moment, homeless Manchurian forces. A new ally was the arrival of the German general Hans von Siecht, formerly the commander-in-chief of the Reichswehr, and since the Nazi takeover in early 1933, uh, wasn't really, you know, up to a whole lot. So he accepted an invitation from Chang and arrived to act as an advisor to the NRA starting in May 1933. This would mark the start of a notable German presence in China, as while Siegt didn't last too long personally, uh, leaving before the end of the year, his place was taken in 1934 by Alexander von Falkenhausen, a general who had traveled extensively in East Asia and had served with distinction aiding the Ottoman army in World War I. Siegt and Falkenhausen would advise Chang that his first order of business would be to drastically reduce the national army size down to 60 divisions of around 750,000 men, which should consist of highly trained units. Which sounds all well and good, everybody wants highly trained elite units, but the specific reasoning here was that Chinese industry couldn't hope to supply even this smaller force with a fully equipped modern army so relying on artillery barrages and masses of tanks was out of the question. Well-trained infantry in the model of World War I stormtroopers was to be the order of the day, with hard-marching foot soldiers utilizing small arms like machine guns, mortars, and grenades to stay light and pack a punch in their immediate vicinity. While Chang would never be able to fully implement their advice, he did manage to form the beginnings of such a force, with around 80,000 well-trained, decently equipped soldiers forming a new, even harder core of his NRA before the main Japanese invasion. The Chinese would also make significant purchases of German weapons and equipment, leading many of these new formations to wear the distinctive Stahlhelm variety of helmet and use German rifles. In addition, the Chinese purchased what artillery, armored cars, and even early tanks as they could, which was remarkable as Germany's rearmament program was constantly being pressured to produce more, so that they were willing to part with anything was notable. An interesting sidebar to all this was the debate in Germany over the nature of its relations in East Asia. I'll get into this more when I discuss early Axis diplomacy, but Germany through the 20s and the first half of the 30s looked on China as a potential friend in the region. The reason for this goes back to the same reason the German Empire had sent Sun Yat-sen's early KMT money during World War I. It was against Western imperialists, which after the loss of Germany's holdings in China, meant pretty much everybody but Germany. So, they were a Western power the KMT felt they could do business with as equals. And then, when the Nazis came to power, Chiang Kai-shek looked on their commitment to establishing order and being anti-communist with favor, taking what notes he could. It didn't hurt that China was seen as an excellent investment opportunity for German industries either, which was part of a long Western tradition of seeing China as the promised land of consumer markets waiting to be opened up. The thing that eventually split the two apart was that Japan was openly and explicitly anti-Soviet, 
so as they turned away from their old allies, a match between Germany and Japan started making more sense, at least in the short term. But anyway, that all concerns events to come, and the results of Chiang's military reforms would take years to even begin showing any result. In the meantime, there was a base camp to win. One thing that Sikh did suggest that had immediate impact was a change in strategy, which after numerous failed campaigns all across South China was probably in order. Sikh pointed out that the Red Army was operating in a confined geographic area that, due to its mountainous nature, offered a limited number of routes in or out. Even dedicated fighters couldn't waltz over mountains in large numbers. They needed some kind of road or trail. Sikh's idea was to form a blockade of the area and set up a system of blockhouses, which were basically bunkers made out of stone, brick, concrete, whatever was on hand. The communists had no heavy weapons to storm the blockhouses, so areas where they were constructed were effectively no-go zones. Once the initial cordon was created, the NRA forces would advance a couple miles, stop, then construct more blockhouses. The secret to the Red Army's success had been giving up ground, luring the NRA and warlord troops to make a rapid advance to pursue them, then set up a pre-planned ambush and encircle the attackers, afterwards regaining the lost ground. The blockhouse approach would prevent this from taking place. There would be no dramatic advances. Instead, day by day, the NRA would tighten the cordon, slowly strangling the base camp. If the communists offered open battle, they'd be facing the NRA's superior firepower in a stand-up fight. The strategy worked like a charm, although it required vast levels of patience. A million NRA troops formed up at the end of September 1933 and slowly started compressing the communists. The main hiccup before the end was the mutiny by the 19th Root Army, which you'll remember from last week as the guys who were the heroes of Shanghai, defiantly standing against the Japanese. In this case, they had been stationed in Fujian province for the campaign, and dissatisfied by the focus on the CPC and not the Japanese, they rebelled against Chang. Uh, this didn't lead to much. The CPC leadership declined to make an alliance with them on account of their reactionary nature, and Chang was able to round them up and replace them on the line. It does show, however, that there were many elements among the Chinese that saw immediate confrontation against the Japanese as the highest priority and not frittering their strength away fighting each other. If they were frustrated, I wouldn't blame them because the blockhouse strategy was a grinding affair and lasted over a year, all the way to October 1934. After such a long time and enjoying next to no meaningful victories, the communists took stock of the situation and realized their cause in Jiangxi was hopeless. For the first army to survive, it would have to act as the fourth army did and march to Sichuan, hopefully away from the NRA. The idea of breaking out to the west in the face of the NRA cordon might have seemed hopeless, but there was a ray of hope. As part of the gigantic army on hand, Chang had brought along the southern warlords, who were very much so not committed to fighting on his behalf. They manned the southern part of the cordon, sure, but they weren't enthusiastic about it. The Red Army massed up 100,000 men and attacked that part of the line held by the Guangdong warlord Chen Jitang, who was the prime leader of the last attempt of a southern counter-government. Rumor has it that the communists gave him $250,000 in silver in exchange for making only a show of trying to stop them. A uh, real fight or no, the communists were quickly on their way, with Chang hot on their heels once he realized what they were doing. The long march was on. 
Uh, this might seem like an embarrassment, and the survival of the Red Army would indeed come back to haunt Chang, but the result was actually to his short-term advantage. First, the Red Army was kind of a husk from what it had been, and the chase across southern China would only further whittle away at its strength. By the time the Red Army reached its final destination a year later, only around 5,000 of the initial army was left, although they picked up guys along the way to replenish their numbers. The communist grip on the south was broken, and it would take years for them to recover. Think of it like the Dunkirk evacuation. In retrospect, it's a thrilling story and planted the seeds for later victory. At the time, though, it was a disaster. And the Red Army running through southern China was great for Chang, as while he pursued them, he was able to deploy hundreds of thousands of his own men in provinces distant to Nanjing. It helped bring the South back into the orbit of the central government, and led some to speculate that Chang himself allowed the breakout to happen, which does make some sense as it got the Red Army out of the mountains and made them a giant target in open ground, but I think that theory goes a little far. While the imposition of NRA garrisons was resented, most warlords made peaceful accommodations with Chang. The exception was Chen Ji Tang, who stayed cooperative for almost two years before starting to plot again against Chang in 1936. Chang responded by doing the old move of bribing his subordinates, collapsing his network of support in Guangdong, and forcing him to flee in July, returning that wealthy province back to the KMT orbit. Again, I'll go over the Long March very soon, so you'll be hearing about all the details about what happened next, but for now, just know that after an epic journey, the CPC settled in northern Shanxi province, about as far away as they could get from Chang. The communists were, for the moment, off the board. Don't worry, even before I get to their dedicated episodes in a couple weeks, they'll be making a fun little appearance in the next episode. In the meantime, the next task at hand was to get the nation ready to fight that big war with the Japanese. There was a lot of work to be done, especially on the economic front. Thanks to the Tongu Truce, the Nanjing government had lost Manchuria and really couldn't effectively exploit the economic hubs of Beijing and Tianjin to the north. The Japanese didn't occupy those areas outright, but they were too vulnerable to make contributions to the future war. That left the center and south as areas where efforts could be made to expand China's industrial base. The biggest issue was, as always, money. The government was hamstrung in being able to fund anything, including itself on account of, one, the gigantic army which just wouldn't go away on account of the warlords, and two, rampant, ceaseless corruption. It's really hard to describe just how corrupt the Nanjing government was, as it was paradoxically the strongest regime China had seen since the, since the days of the Qing, but at the same time was constantly devouring itself. Chang himself was more power-hungry than anything else, so while he lived in some comfort, he was kind of a monk compared to some of the freaks he employed. Many of those he trusted implicitly, uh, looking over at the CC clique there, which included his own wife, her family, and several of his ministers as members, and they just took everything they could, whenever they could. It was painfully embarrassing, and dragged down public support for the KMT. But Chang valued loyalty, so if they were there for him he'd be there for them. Unfortunately, pleasant sentiments of loyalty don't bring home the money, and the nation's chaotic finances started breaking apart as the Shanghai financiers were forced to put up ever larger sums of money. Then in August 1934, a seemingly humdrum policy change in the U.S. really screwed over the Kuomintang. It was one of those butterfly effect things. 
FDR wanted to make sure precious metal didn't escape out of the U.S., and in April 1933 made an executive order to prevent the hoarding of gold. If it wasn't part of some everyday use, like in jewelry, dentistry, or some art as a few examples, it could be seized. Makes sense. The U.S. stayed on the gold standard and therefore needed reliable amounts of gold on hand to keep the money supply healthy and avoid disruptions. Well, over a year later, in August 1934, FDR did the same thing for silver. China is special because it wasn't on the gold standard. It was on its own silver standard, which was because silver had for centuries been the default method of exchange when using currency. Keep in mind that during the Age of Exploration and the Spanish Empire and all that, that it was actually mountains of silver more so than gold that the Europeans found in the New World. And that precious metal was then shipped across the Pacific to China, where the Europeans bought tons of Chinese-manufactured goods. Heck, one of the reasons the British were so desperate to sell opium in China was to try and get a share of that silver pinata that had been filled over the centuries. So the Chinese monetary supply depended on silver. All of a sudden, they couldn't get any more from America, meaning the money supply was restricted, exactly at the time when expenses were increasing due to centralization and modernization efforts. This led in November 1935 to the silver standard being abandoned, and the government just going with the paper currency, with silver no longer being accepted as a monetary unit. I mentioned back in episode 150 that in the mid-30s, the government started consolidating the banking sector under its control. The move off the silver standard was the moment where this financial control really got underway. This meant, too, that the silver chains restraining the money supply were now gone as well and the Bank of China went on a printing spree. From late 1935 to the Japanese invasion of July 1937, less than two years, the money supply doubled. This wasn't quite as bad as it sounds, because price controls and a growing economy kept inflation in check, but it was going to be a huge problem in wartime when controls broke down and printing expanded still more. And inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing, it's usually indicative of a growing economy. How much that could be credited to the government is a cause of some historical debate. Proponents of the KMT have offered that the industrial growth of the Nanjing decade shows that however bad the regime was, its policies were creating growth in China. Meanwhile, those who take a dimmer view point to the dysfunction in the center as a weight that the nation was forced to bear. As you might have guessed, I'm in the latter's camp, as the growth in the Nanjing years was about in line with the growth through the warlord era, and that period was even more dicey to start or expand a business. The Nanjing government did manage to standardize much of the economy by the mid-30s, with local currencies and ancient units of measurement being abolished in most areas, although the long-standing warlord provinces like Shenzhi and Yunnan kept on as they always had. The Kuomintang also had the ability to intervene to an extent that was unheard of up to that point, although I cannot speak to very many uh, positive results. It's estimated that about 70% of the capital that otherwise was available for investment into economic activity instead went to loans to help fund the government. Not great in a free market system where the entire point of capital's excesses was to encourage investment in order to produce higher growth. Instead, the nation's industries found themselves in direct competition with the central government to get loans out of the banks, leading to balance sheet-destroying interest rates of up to 20% on debt. On top of that, taxes were raised, and kind of unique to the KMT government, actually enforced in the central areas where growth was at its highest. 
The taxes did not take into account the expected donations and bribes to the government officials either, so short-term expediency did a real good job of frustrating long-term ambitions as money that could be used for investment lined KMT pockets. The government was able to boast of its improvements in infrastructure, laying thousands of miles of railroads and telegraph lines and definitely boosting the interconnectedness of the country. A leading proponent of government intervention was T.V. Sung, the Western-educated brother-in-law of Chiang Kai-shek, who launched in 1934 the China Development Finance Corporation, the CDFC. It was intended to be a mostly private investment vehicle for people, and especially foreign governments, to stake their money to fund development projects, and then reap the rewards once they were completed. This initially didn't work, as people just weren't interested in staking the cash. But after 1935, the government started taking control of the banking sector, and soon was placed in charge of the Bank of China. He quickly started funneling money from the bank into the CDFC, and from there to the start of the war with Japan, it was off to the races. And the infrastructure projects weren't limited to railroads either. Development money went into electrical and water infrastructure, as well as mining operations. It's a fun example of how nationalist China worked, as while Sung was a government employee and the CDFC a government initiative, and the money came from a government-controlled bank, the ownership of it all was private, which was to say that Sung and his people were the primary beneficiaries. And Sung didn't only use the CDFC as an investment vehicle either. In his leadership capacity with the Bank of China, the bank would come to operate 15 textile mills as well as have extensive holdings in the food industry. He wasn't alone either, as the Ministry of Industries got into the act, creating the Central Fish Market, which created a monopoly on sales of fish in central China. Again, government initiative, government people, but the profits were private. To support the military, Cheng personally saw to the creation of a National Resources Commission, which fell under the control of the army through the Military Affairs Commission. It was responsible for creating a military-industrial complex, one that could be transferred between regions and not be centralized around Shanghai. The reason being was to prevent everything falling to a Japanese attack all at once, and for the factories to be able to be evacuated into the nation's interior. A five-year plan was drafted in 1936 to develop both factories and resource extraction operations to meet the NRA's needs. Unfortunately, money didn't grow on trees and was oftentimes embezzled, and the available budget was just 10% of what was necessary to meet the plan's goals. This meant China would continue to rely on foreign imports for its weapons, and its own industrial base remained woefully inadequate. And for whatever achievements might have existed in the cities, the lot of the peasants hardly changed at all, which is to say that their lives were unrelentingly miserable. The KMT certainly wanted to increase crop output and modernize the rural areas, but as I talked about briefly in episode 150, there really weren't a whole lot of people in the government or party who knew how to do that. They were city folk, and didn't think about the peasants too much. Hu Hanmin, the old follower of Sun Yat-sen and occasional rival of Chang, tried to push through a land reform law in 1930. It imposed a maximum amount of the total harvest that country landlords would take as rent owed to them to 37.5%. The peasants paid their rent via their harvest, not in cash, of which they had next to none. The law also allowed peasants to buy out the landlord if they had worked the land for a decade. It was a nice law, but never actually enforced. Rents continued to run at around 50-70% to 70 of the peasants' harvests, and worse, the gentry were increasingly sought out as partners to the government. 
The reality was that the KMT's reach in the countryside was badly limited, so the expedient thing to do was just to let the landlords do the governing for them. Less than 4% of the government's expenditures went to the agricultural sector, and while the Kuomintang performed countless surveys and studies of the provinces, there wasn't any money to actually do anything. For the farmers that constituted the vast majority of the nation's population, they were on their own. Okay, that's not entirely true. They still had the landlords bleeding them dry. You know, there was still that. The 30s were also a time of fluctuating droughts and floods across many breadbasket areas as well. This meant that in addition to government indifference, peasants were faced with natural disasters, which badly impacted the nation's food supply during a critical time in its history, as well as, of course, leading to a huge amount of human misery and unrest among the uh, peasants in these areas. I could say that the Kuomintang government couldn't catch a break, but even if things had been easier on them, they probably would have just used the favorable conditions to embezzle more money. But Chang wasn't completely blind to the mounting discontent with his government. That's why, next week, I'll be covering both his own attempts to stabilize his government, as well as the efforts made by his most dedicated supporters, all of which was work doomed to failure by the weakness of the Kuomintang government and the rapidly ticking clock on Japanese aggression. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.